these companies that are on the forefront are going to eat these other companies. That's just the competitive differentiation is so substantial. Many companies go away because they aren't able to keep up with this digital innovation. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Great Tech Group. You're invited to join our conversation to model the future of construction, innovation, and the digital transformation adventure of this great industry. My guest today is Anthony Zufeld. He's a senior solutions architect at Applied Software Great Tech Group. He's a computational design expert with a deep background in AEC technology, operations, and business strategies. Welcome back to the show, Anthony. It's good to be back. <laughs> and we were just chatting beforehand. It's your first solo gig on the the show. Last time I was with Marcelo and Christopher Riddell. So welcome. Just you. I'm I excited. Know. I, I feel like I've made it to the big time. So I'm, I'm honored. Uh, it's, it's great to be here, though. Hopefully the experience doesn't disappoint then. <laughs> uh, so for those who may not have listened to when you were on before, uh, how did you get into the industry to begin with? Uh, uh, it's it's an industry that I, I think for a lot of people, you know you're going to get into it from a very young age. Uh, I was a kid that was really creative. I did the Legos, all those stereotypes of uh, you're going to be a builder, you're going to be a creator. And uh, so I knew from a long ways back that I was going to be a designer. I was going to be something in that space. And, you know, that I, I ended up going to Texas Tech for architecture. And, um, you know, from there, I've kind of moved into the technology side of the world. But I do think it's important to kind of ground all of this in I really chose architecture as my profession because I was really uh, interested in sustainability and understanding some of the really impactful uh, metrics that we have in the building industry on sustainability and carbon goals that we have as a society. So, you know, it was 15 years ago and we've come a long way since then and I've kind of excited to talk about some of this innovation that's been happening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what made you kind of make the the transition over from uh, the design world into the technology and, and software space? It, it was about scalability for me. Um, you know, I was working on a project or a couple of projects a year and while I think I could make a deep impact on making uh, a building or a couple of buildings really sustainable, um, what I realized is that, you know, getting into the consulting space, getting into the thought leadership space, um, we can really begin to help multiply that impact by showing many people how we can make uh, better design, how we can achieve lower carbon outcomes. And so in a nutshell, it was about scalability. Mm -hmm. So kind of in that, that vein of kind of reaching more people, you were just at the advancing computational building design show up in Chicago. Can you give me kind of a, a quick synopsis of, of what your class was about during the event? Sure. Um, you know, this was titled changing the product specification 
paradigm. And really, it was, again, grounded in uh, this idea of sustainability and, and equipping design and construction firms to take control of their specifications through the lens of embodied carbon analysis. And so what I really cover is first kind of how we measure embodied carbon um, in a general term, but then I get very specific in looking at a workflow where we are able to connect several external embodied carbon databases that make it very clear what the embodied carbon impact of a product is. To give an example, uh, and this is a specific example, this was actually a uh, part of the case study of the presentation, but at the Denver International Airport, there are there, there's a big expansion of the terminal that's happening. And uh, Galoon Snow was the interior designer on the project. And what we wanted to do is to empower the designers to understand how much embodied carbon is in an airport chair when it's leather versus some kind of uh, recycled eco product. And being able to really have a clear visual inside of an application like Revit or in a dashboard in Power BI, we can look side by side and see when I put in this chair with leather, it's going to have 120 uh, you know, kilograms of embodied carbon versus this synthetic leather is going to be 15. And then you multiply that over 2,000 chairs, and suddenly you have a substantial difference. Mm-hmm. So uh, in a nutshell, that's what the presentation was. It was talking about how we measure embodied carbon and then how we give our designers and specifiers the tools to make good choices grounded in an understanding of the embodied carbon impact of the products that we're considering. Why should firms really be be thinking about this and how should they kind of wrestle through this, this topic? Well, I mean, I, I think there's the there's the part of me that's the idealist, and you know, I want to say you should be thinking about this and doing this because it's the right thing to do. But I will also give you the cynical side of the fence, which is that it's in your best interest um, as a firm, because what we're seeing is both the regulatory uh, landscape is changing to where what was before a, um, a volunteer-based is now becoming a mandatory. So getting into sustainability uh, outcomes, you're, as a firm, risking losing business in the coming year and years if you don't have a game plan and uh, credentials around achieving sustainable uh, building outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious because I feel like when we talk about sustainability, it can it can seem so uh, pie in the sky concept. Oh, sure. To kind of be trite about it, but I don't mean to belittle it. But it, you know, it seems like oh yeah, yeah, sustainability. It's it's a big thing. We all need to do it. But practically, 
something gets lost in translation that people think that it's the it's kind of like the collective problem but not an individual problem and the collective's never going to do it unless the individual takes ownership and and starts doing it uh, what are your what are your thoughts there how do we make it more individually practical to get buy-in well, you know, I, I think what we're seeing with the regulatory uh, environment changing does kind of highlight how I think as a society we're trying to approach this, because while it's true that we do want people to kind of come at this uh, of their own accord and participate in creating a more sustainable future, what we're seeing is that through incentives, through financial incentives, tax credits, and through just the big stick of you can't work, you can't use this material on a project unless it's, you know, made in the USA and hits these kind of sustainability targets. Um, so I guess to, to kind of pull that back into focus, we're seeing regulations force us as individual companies and as individual contributors to start to really step up our game. And that regulatory teeth is getting sharper as uh, this whole sustainability movement really starts to take hold. And uh, I, I think gain more it's credibility, right? It's credibility and also that sense of urgency that we are running out of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so one of the, I think, challenges that it's facing the industry is there's like, how do you track it? There's so much data that is available, which is awesome. Um, but it's in all these different silos and, and different pockets yeah. and not everybody has access to the same data set, which makes it incredibly difficult and, and challenging. How do you go about connecting these kind of disparate data sources and, and databases into the kind of a collective space and in the, the authoring tools. Right. Well, you know, I, I think what you're hitting on here, first of all, is important to call out that data is essential for making, um, I think, informed decisions on the sustainability side of things. So what that means is that to make a good project that maybe is working towards a carbon neutral uh, outcome that requires that we have a deep understanding of our design moves, the orientation of the building. What does that mean for adding a glass facade to the operational carbon consumption? What does that mean for the embodied carbon when we use a concrete slab? And so there's a lot of different pieces of data that we need to have. And the reality is, Todd, that data is hosted in many different places. Uh, it's not in a central location. And that makes it, like you're saying, really hard. The good news is that it's getting easier every day to get that data and bring it into your design environment and bring it into your project management environment. Uh, if you look at some of the, the leading kind of uh, database applications and the tools that we have to connect to them, it's getting very easy to do stuff without programming to connect data from different sources. 
So an example of this is really going to be uh, building transparency, which is uh, a sustainability startup. I, I don't know if they're a startup, but they are a company focused on this. Uh, and they have a, a database called EC3. And um, this database is super easy to connect straight into Revit. Um, you can connect it straight into Power BI. And, and so thinking about tools like Looker Studio or Power BI, you can hook into these databases uh, for free, non-programmatically, and then you have an automated data relay that provides us with uh, up-to-date information on sustainability metrics of you know the materials that we're using and the products that we're using mm -hmm. yeah very cool uh how should kind of shifting into the embodied carbon impact aspect of it how should how should we think through that especially when it comes to product selection so uh, thinking through the design keeping embodied carbon in the kind of the back of your mind when you're kind of laying everything out. Does that make sense? It, it does. I think it's it's first, it, it's worth taking a step back and defining what is embodied carbon. Um, embodied carbon is, is essentially, when we think about a building, uh, the energy consumption that happens to cool and heat the building, to light the building, that's all operational carbon. Embodied carbon is uh, all of the carbon output that it takes to make, uh, to, to let's, let's, let's kind of walk through this. It's the carbon that it takes to extract the raw materials from the environment, like cutting down uh, a tree to make lumber, then taking that to the lumber mill the power that it takes from the lumber mill to cut all the wood, and then the carbon that is generated shipping that to the distribution facility, like a Lowe's or a Home Depot, and then getting that to the job site. It's also what happens after the building is decommissioned. If we were to tear down the building, what happens to the construction materials after the fact? So that's kind of embodied carbon. And I, I think one thing that is worth acknowledging is it's really hard to actually measure all of that because what you're talking about is three different types of emissions, what we call scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And it's very hard to accurately tally up all of those emissions. So we put this caveat out there that Embodied carbon data is very much a rough guess. We're taking a guess that we think uh, it, was, it took this much carbon to make this product and then bring it to the job site. With that being said, that data is getting increasingly more accurate. We are getting better and better at tracking it more and more companies in the supply chain of the building industry are actively choosing to try to track their own carbon output. So with this information, it means that we as designers and builders 
have a much easier time understanding the implications of the embodied carbon impact of the materials and the products that we're choosing, that we're specifying, that we're installing on the job sites. That ability to easily assess and compare gives us the ability to easily make choices between two options, two or more options. Bridging the Gap is powered by Graytech Group. As a global BIM and modeling expert, Graytech is dedicated to empowering construction and manufacturing professionals to digitize and industrialize their processes to improve performance and build a sustainable tomorrow. With more than 30 years in the industry, they know how to be your partner in a world where change is the new normal and always strive to enable their customers to gain an increased competitive advantage to model the future. Visit greatech-group.com for more information. Hmm. Nice. Very cool. Uh, what, uh, let's shift into kind of the, the handover process. What, how can we improve that using sustainability reporting when we're, we're handing it over to the, the owner? Sure. So this, this is another spot where it's really, um, again, whatever your beliefs are around sustainability and climate change and all those things, I get they can be uh, maybe a challenging topic for some people and that's okay. But what it's, you know, what's worth calling out is that as we kind of shift into this new era where ESG reporting is becoming increasingly uh, a mandate amongst companies, ESG kind of being environmental, social, and corporate governance, there are standards that are being put into place and publicly traded companies are required to have ESG reporting. And that ESG reporting is everything from uh, you know, declaring what the pay ratio is from the CEO to uh, the average paid employee. But it's also getting into sustainability implications. And so how much carbon is a company producing? How much carbon does a company like Walmart produce? If you go look up Walmart ESG report, you will find that they have to produce an annual report that's fairly substantial and that includes all of this information. The thing is that the building industry is being asked to step up our game. We are actually contributing to the ability of our customers like a Walmart to generate those ESG reports. They need to know when they built that next Walmart location, how much carbon did that generate? And how much carbon is that going to produce as they operate that building? All of that data is being asked of us in the building industry to be turned over in a very consumable format for our customers. So a Walmart is going to be expecting that the architect of a Walmart facility is able to clearly show this is how much carbon we think we produced 
in building this thing and this is how much it's going to consume each year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, that transparency aspect of it too, and the, the visibility and the insights into where things are across the uh, life cycle, mm-hmm. that's huge. I mean, just being able to, you know, transparency is the best disinfected. <laughs> uh, being able to to see that is, is something that traditionally the industry hasn't had, and I think that's a huge reason of why we've we've struggled to to make this uh, practical in in any real way because it has been very uh, theoretical. And you know, I, I I think if if there's one thing that I hope people can take away from this episode, it's that it's actually gotten much easier. And really just in the last year, two, three years, uh, the tools that we have at our disposal make it much easier, much less disruptive and something that just easily fits into our design and construction workflow. Yeah, very cool. So kind of bringing it back full circle back to your class last week at Advancing Compensation to your class. And were there any kind of common questions that, that came up during it? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm biased in saying I, I, I felt like it went well. <laughs> <laughs> best class. I have no doubt. <laughs> it was not the best class. There are some others that were mind blowing, but, um, I, I think that there's one thing in, in there. I, I opened with this line and it's not my line. It's actually uh, Stacy Smedley, who is the director of building transparency. Uh, but back at AU in the fall, I attended a workshop with her and she said something that I think we all in the building industry really need to think about, which is that, uh, you know, when we think about those carbon net zero goals that we're setting 2050, 2030, um, 2030 is today for the built environment. The buildings that we're building right now are going to have a direct impact on the ability of our society and our customers to achieve net zero carbon. Um, And so thinking about that, that's really, I, I think, throughout the conference, people kept coming up to me and saying, you know, you're right. It's not off in the distant future. It's not 30 years from now, because the buildings that we are building right now, provided we did our jobs right, should still be standing in 30 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would hope <laughs> for sure. Uh, so the the event is all about you know obviously computational design and, and and really kind of bringing that disseminating it across the, the industry it's uh the last time you were on we, we broke down computational design in in more detail than what we'll do this episode but uh what what kind of are your, your thoughts what's, what's the state of the industry so to speak around computational design oh man i got a lot of thoughts <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, if I'm to be completely honest, I left that conference with a sense of unease. I don't think people realized just 
how disruptive change is coming our way. Some of the presentations that we saw at the conference by some incredible innovative thought leaders in our industry, the extent of automation that they're achieving and the sophisticated design reconciliation is, is uh, honestly like, it, it makes you really question what is our future? What does it mean to be an architect? What does it mean to be an engineer if I can push a button and I can solve the entire structural design with the click of a button? Um, I think that our industry has a long ways to go before we get to buttons automate everything. But we're closer than we think. Uh, yeah, Anthony, I, I totally agree with that. There's that, that disparity you're going to see really start to shrink because the, the people at the, um, I don't want to say the, the bottom, let's say the lower tier of the innovation curve, that they're, they're going to start getting left behind for sure. And if you're not doing it, somebody else is, is already well ahead and is close to figuring it out if they haven't already. And they're going to really blow blow you away if you don't start getting on this journey. It's a, it's a race and it's already begun. Uh, is there any kind of other takeaways from the conference or any key trends that people should be looking out for in 2023? Sure. Um, it, it might feel cliche to bring it up because it's been so pervasive in popular media right now, but AI. AI is coming, it's coming to the AEC industry and it's coming faster than you might think. We saw a, a handful of presentations where people have been building and, and training AIs to help with a specific task like energy modeling or designing uh, structural systems for a building. And it was, it was eye-opening to me because when we think about AI, that there's a couple of different, um, there's, there's kind of a couple of different ways that you could train an AI. There's kind of like a generative adversarial networks, GANs. Uh, then uh, you also have like diffusion models, which is more like what chat GPT is. And the, the thing is that whatever you train an AI on, you have to have data. You have to have data to train your AI. And that data has to be accurate, well cataloged, and um, tagged correctly. So let's put it this way. Um, two years ago, I took a machine learning class. Uh, I, I built a very simple uh, Python AI that used uh, TensorFlow as its primary engine. And I trained it on how to identify puppies and flowers. So uh, you, you could take a picture with your phone, take a picture of your dog and send it to my AI. And it could tell you, I think that is a border collie, uh, probably purebred border collie. You're like, great job, good guess. So to do that, it takes 
thousands of pictures of puppies of, of different dog species. And each picture needs to include a tag saying, this is a Rottweiler, this is a Golden Retriever. And then ultimately you feed that to your machine learning model to train your AI. There are tons of data sources on puppies. We love taking pictures of our dogs, right? <laughs> There's tons of pictures on flowers, but you know what there's not a ton of pictures on and not a ton of databases buildings floor plans like detailed accurately tagged floor plans if i had a database that could produce um you know let's say uh, a floor plan of a house when a kitchen a bedroom living room and a bathroom uh to train an ai on how to recognize that i need to have a couple thousand floor plans with all of those rooms and then tags. That means that we don't have data, right? Like as an industry, we don't have good data like the tech industry does. But what we saw at the conference is that we figured a way around that uh, using what's called synthetic data. Synthetic data is essentially creating through kind of like a parametric computation, a uh, artificial representation of that data construct. To put that in much simpler terms, imagine I have a square and I set a variable of, of uh, X and Y representing the, the width and the length. And then I say that width can be anywhere from one to 100 feet, and the length can be anywhere from 1 to 100 feet. I then hit uh, compute, and it generates every possible permutation of that, a 1 by 1 square, a 100 by 100 square, and every possible combination in between. And then suddenly, I have a massive data set that I can train my AI to use. What we saw at the conference is people have figured out how to build these synthetic data sets doing exactly that. And they are now training AIs that are solving fairly complex problems that if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, if we could ever automate this stuff, I would have said, we're a decade away and it's happening now. Yeah, that's really cool. So with that in mind, what does innovation mean to you? Ooh, that's a tough one, but I knew you were going to ask it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that innovation to me, it's about preparing yourself for the future, it, right? Innovation is about a continuous improvement and, and taking an assessment of where you are today and where you want to be and aspiring to actually get there. Yeah, it comes with, it's aspirational, but it has the detailed kind of roadmap to get you there. Right. I like that. How do people find out more information and connect with you, Anthony? Well, um, you're always welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active there. Uh, feel free to, uh, I'm sure my contact info might be available in the episode. Uh, feel free to reach it's, it's out. A pretty good help. guess. 
<laughs> whatever contact info is up there, feel free to use it. Perfect. Final question for you. If I could give you all power and you could snap your fingers and innovate one thing in the industry, what would you choose to innovate? Ooh, that's hard. Uh, I think from an innovation standpoint, could could I could I give you an answer that seems less innovative and more cultural? Sure. Uh, I, I think more open knowledge sharing. Where we have so many people doing so many cool things uh, in their own silos in their own corners of the world. Um, I think part of why I love bridging the gap is that you give people a platform to share the cool things that they're thinking about and working on. I think collectively as an industry, being able to shift that culture and that mindset to be more open to sharing, let's share and together we can get to that better future. Yeah. I think you discounted how innovative that thought actually is. But yes, it's not tech innovation, but that's incredibly innovative because it quite frankly doesn't get done as much as what it needs to. I'm a firm believer in let's share knowledge and have space and dialogue for people to come on and uh, share their their knowledge. Because if, if we're not, then as soon as that person leaves the, the industry, whether it's, you know, in 30 years when they're retiring or now because they're fed up, that information's gone. So we have to be able to have these conversations and, and open it up to people to, to learn from others. We don't know it all. That's well said. And I mean, you know, there's things that I know that you don't know. There's things you know that I don't know. And again, kind of being able to crowdsource that knowledge and innovation, that's going to generate the strongest possible outcome. Amen. Preach. Uh, that's a great way to end the, <laughs> the episode right there. I got nothing else. Mic drop. Anthony, thanks so much for uh, taking the time and, and coming on solo this time. My pleasure. It's great to be here. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take. As I mentioned a few episodes back, when it comes to a big topic like sustainability, it's important to be bold and aspirational without losing track of how to practically build a roadmap for the individual to participate. Second take, data is key to making wise, informed decisions. Take the time to think through your data strategy and how you're going to connect disparate data sets together effectively. And final take, the race towards innovation is already well underway. If you are still sitting on the sidelines, you're going to be passed by. Join the race today and start mapping out your strategy. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant thanking you for joining the conversation to model the future on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an Applied Software Great Tech Group production. Copyright Applied Software Great Tech Group 2023.